Amen. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are grateful for your love expressed to us in so many different ways. We especially thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you for his love for us. Would you please speak to us now through your word and help us to see clearly our sin, uh, convict us, uh, lead us to repentance, but most of all, help us see our Savior and his love and mercy and grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I need to say that I'm afraid for you, because I'm afraid for me, I'm afraid for all of us, because we are not nearly as strong as we think we are, and we can fall far easier than we may assume, and we are all susceptible to much more than we think we are capable of. What makes us so vulnerable to sin and its destructive power today? A number of things. Temptations are everywhere, and they are relentless. Sins that used to be hard to access are available at the click of a link or the tap of an app. There is an enemy who very literally wants to destroy us. And today, sin and guilt are regularly dismissed or minimized. The world and, sadly, many Christians scoff at all this. Oh, come on, you old-fashioned, oversensitive, naive, fundamentalist prudes. It's not that bad. Or even, it's not bad at all. And on top of all that, we have our own hearts, which are bent towards evil. The prophet Jeremiah says, our hearts are deceitful above all things, desperately sick, unknowable. Which means that our greatest vulnerability comes from within. And all of this creates an intense and constant pressure that can be so hard to faithfully resist. And yet we must. We must, for the sake of our own souls, for our health, for our names, for our loved ones, and more. I don't know who needs to hear this message most today. Maybe you, maybe me, maybe all of us, but certain ones of you may be on the brink of a precipice today seriously considering or planning choices that can be disastrous. I must warn you. Others of you may have already stumbled into compromise or destructive sin. Seems to me that lately more people have fallen than I have ever seen before. I want to offer you hope today. That there is healing and forgiveness available for you. Others of us may not consciously be toying or flirting with sin, and yet we are confronted with it daily anyway. 
And like I just said, you may have no idea how close you are to falling. So I want to sound the alarm today to open our eyes, to sober us up, and to help us find freedom and peace and joy once again so we can walk in the light. All right? So to do this, we will read one of the most sobering stories of sin in Scripture, found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And you can open there with me now, 2 Samuel 11. It's not too many pages over from the story of Ruth, which we studied this summer. And the main character in this story is Ruth's great-grandson, David. David the shepherd boy, the giant slayer, the psalm writer, and the mighty king. He's known as the greatest king in Israel's history with a godly and heroic reputation. In 2 Samuel 11, David is basically at the peak of his powers, the pinnacle of his reign, which makes what suddenly happens here so shocking, unexpected. Read along with me says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem, perhaps where he shouldn't really have been. It happened. That's worrisome. It happened. What happened? Something major. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, backstory: Uriah was a friend of David's, one of his mighty men. But that doesn't stop David from making a devastating decision. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Uh-oh. Scandal time. And then it gets worse. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Now David expects Uriah to do what any warm-blooded male with a beautiful wife would do who's been away for a long time. Go home, have a good time with their wife. And that way there'd be a cover for the scandalous pregnancy. But Uriah doesn't play along. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to, down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Let's try it again. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So David gets frustrated, decides to do something really dastardly. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And tragically, that order gets carried out. Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling, me, telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So like Joab foresees David getting upset about these foolish military maneuvers. So he says, just tell him Uriah died and that'll appease him. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And sure enough, David's response is cold, chilling even. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. We then get a sad epilogue. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And then the storyteller gives us this ominous comment at the end of the chapter. It's the first time we see God enter this story. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You think? (laughs) Let me ask you this. Do you care whether or not your life is pleasing to the Lord? The Bible is very clear that we can either please or displease God all the time. And if you don't care what God thinks of you, You probably don't love him. As anyone who truly loves someone else never wants to displease the one that they love. So right now, I'll appeal to those of you who do love the Lord. Those of you who have been born again and made new and filled with the Spirit. Because if that's you, I know you have a desire to please God now. So do you know what pleases him? Or what displeases him. We can learn, we can discern what does. And are you aware of the ways that your thoughts, 
words or actions can yet be displeasing to him. Does displeasing the Lord bother you at all? It should. In this case, saying what David did displeased the Lord was an understatement. Think of the sins that David committed in this one chapter. Obviously, lust, coveting, stealing, adultery, murder. Given the power dynamics at play, his actions would easily fit modern definitions of rape. You might also possibly add apathy, deception, plotting evil, greed, mistreatment of the poor, abuse of authority, possible treason, and a total lack of remorse or repentance. And since he was clearly not loving God or putting him first during this whole time, you could argue that David broke seven of the Ten Commandments in one chapter. And that brings us to chapter 12. And notice that this is at least nine months later at this point because an entire pregnancy has gone by and the baby's been born by now. So that means David has been living for almost a year in guilt and shame, living under God's clear displeasure. I would guess that that ate away at him. But we don't actually know. Did he even notice it was his conscience too seared by this time. All that to say, if you've been living in deep shame or guilt over something in your past, there is still hope for you. Your story is not over yet. You can come clean and be cleansed. You can be freed and forgiven. But, If we are to come clean, we must first recognize and admit what we've done. We need to be confronted with the reality of our sinful ways and see it for what it is. David wasn't there yet at the end of chapter 11. But in chapter 12, God confronts him. And this part of the story reveals something that I believe can be very true for us as well. That just like David, we can be blinded to the true horror of sin. We can be totally blind, blinded to the true horror of sin. David certainly appears blind, if not completely callous to his sin here. We see no contrition, no tears, no apologies, no confession, no remorse. So God had to open his eyes. And he does so through a prophet's powerful parable. Look at it with me. And the Lord sent Nathan, he was a prophet, to David. Nathan came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he, had brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, David 
initially thinks that he's hearing a report of a crime that has happened elsewhere. As if Nathan were saying, a grave injustice has been done in Israel, my king. A poor man was horrifically robbed. What are you going to do about it? And David is rightfully enraged. It says then David, in verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now this is just a, a masterful tactic by Nathan, because he doesn't just storm in and accuse David. He doesn't let David get defensive, at, like most of us tend to do when we get confronted. Nathan very quickly gets David to condemn himself by his own words. The, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Now catch what God tells David, because it's significant. I would expect something like, Uriah was such a faithful friend of yours. Like, how could you betray him? Or, Bathsheba was an innocent woman under your rule. How dare you touch her? Those were true. But that's not the approach God takes. Look, Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Do you see what he's saying? David's sins were a personal betrayal of the Lord. Of course, others were hurt. But God was the first and most offended party. God lifts out how generous and gracious he had been to David over the years. David is already one of the most blessed men in the entire world. And God says, I'd have given so much more than even all this. So, so David had essentially spat on the grace and generosity of God. He says David had despised his word. His word doing horrible evil in God's sight. In verse 10, God's even more blunt, saying, You have despised me. And in verse 14, Nathan says David had utterly scorned the Lord. He had scorned the grace of God, the word of God, and the person of God. No wonder David later confessed to the Lord against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And that's before you get to the heartless way he had treated Uriah and Bathsheba. Like the rich man, 
taking the little someone else had for himself. Pitiless greed. Now, like David, our sin is both horizontal and it's vertical. It not only hurts ourselves, does that too, it hurts and harms others, and worse, it displeases and offends the Lord. And so often we are blinded to this reality. May God open our eyes today. Because while our sin might not be on the same dramatic scale as David's was, our sin is equally offensive and horrific. And we must stop treating it lightly. I doubt that anyone here, if we're honest with ourselves, would deny that we've coveted many things that are not ours, lusted after them. We've taken things that don't belong to us. And all the, the kids here have done this. We've all been pitiless or heartless in how we've treated others at times. Worse, we have spat upon the grace and generosity of God. He has been so, so good to us. And look how we've repaid him. We've despised the word of the Lord, disregarding his clear commands. We've done what is evil in his sight over and over again. By our actions, we have despised the Lord himself, scorning him in our hearts. And it is we who have done it. You and I are the man or the woman. We have no one else to blame but ourselves. And therefore, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, as the Lord lives, we deserve to die. Sin being first and foremost against God is why all sin, no matter how small it might seem, is actually worthy of death. David Platt tells a helpful story here. I've shared it before. I'm sure I'll share it again. But he says that he had a friend who was sharing the gospel with a taxi driver in another country. And the driver was having a hard time seeing why his sin was so serious. After all, he wasn't that bad of a person. Why would God be so offended? You ever thought that? I'm not that bad. Sins aren't that bad. Why would God be so offended? So the man asked the driver, if I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? And the man answered, well, I'd throw you out of my taxi. Okay, so what if I went up to a random person on the street and slapped them in the face? What would happen? Well, he, he'd probably call his friends over and they'd beat you up. Okay, so what if I went to a policeman and I slapped him in the face? And the driver's like, well, you'd be beat up for sure. And then you'd go to jail. So, what if I went up to the king of this country and slapped him? And the driver chuckled. <laughs> My friend, 
you would die. <laughs> and he concluded, so you see that the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who is sinned against. So, what happens when we sin against a holy, sovereign God, the master and creator of everyone, the king of kings, and the lord of lords? And we essentially slap him repeatedly all the time. See, we treat sin so flippantly. We consider it so insignificant. But the cost is so great. We could apply Romans 1.32 to ourselves and to our world and say, though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. By the way, the, the such things in that verse are not just murder and adultery. They include things like coveting, malice, envy, strife, deceit, gossip, boasting, and disobeying parents. Sin is no joke. All sin is horrific. And we are all horrific sinners. The more you see this, the more you grasp this, the more amazing grace will be to you. But once we see, we should be staggered by the deadly cost of sin. We should be. It is good for us to be staggered by the deadly cost of sin. Sin is still just as spiritually and eternally deadly in 2022 as it was in David's day. But even just physically, look at what it cost David. We'll read from verse 10 here down to 23. Nathan says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead, he may do himself some harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. It's heartbreaking stuff. I count five major costs here. First, the sword would never depart from David's house. In other words, his family would be plagued by violence and death. Fitting for one who said the sword devours now one and now another. For a king, this meant that his dynasty would be plunged into chaos. The peace and stability that David had built up over years would be shattered. And as we read the history, it, it happened through civil wars, assassinations, and coups. Second, evil or calamity would be raised up against David himself from his own family. And this happened when his son Absalom led a rebellion against him. Third, his wives would be taken away from him and violated. The sexual sins David had done secretly happened openly with his sons. Fourth, that relates to the next one is public humiliation. These sins would happen publicly in daylight in the sight of all Israel. David's reputation would be forever tarnished. And finally, while David's own life is spared, his newborn son would die. We already read just how tragically that happened. More on that later. We can clearly see here that there were dire costs to David's sin. But then we ask, is this the case for us? Really, like, are all sins this costly? I mean, David was a monster here. Even, even those of us who might shy away from harsh judgment might concede that an unrepentant murderer and rapist deserves what comes to him. But what about our less sinister sins? Our lies, our anger and rage, our gossip, our disobedience, our greed, our lust, our pride. Well, you may not have a prophet knocking on your door and handing out penalties. <laughs> and in his patience and mercy, God might not punish all our sins immediately. But like it says in Romans 1, all our sins against a holy God rightly deserve death. And here's the thing. They all ultimately cost death too. Either our own death or someone else's. A substitute's death. Long story short, either your sins will be paid for by you in hell or by Jesus on the cross. There are no exceptions. And we should be staggered by the cost that we see. I'm sure David was. Stunned, horrified, convicted, wide-eyed, weeping. 
And in the middle of this, we saw David's confession in verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He might be scandalized all over again that that's all it took for David to get off free. But that statement, I have sinned against the Lord, is probably not all David did. We, we see elsewhere that he truly mourned his sin and turned away from it. That's likely representative of his heart posture and a deeper repentance. Nonetheless, this is shocking grace from God. Grace is indeed scandalous for all of us. But the Lord loves to respond to his people's genuine repentance. He loves that. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Notice again, though, David didn't just get off free either. Many consequences remained in place. Being forgiven doesn't remove all the consequences. You cannot rebel against God without painful repercussions. And consequences for forgiven sin, because if you're a believer in Christ and your sins have been forgiven, then any consequences that you're facing are that. They're consequences for forgiven sin. They do several things. That upholds God's reputation. It shows the evil of sin. They, these consequences humble us. They sanctify us who have sinned, dis disciplining us for our good, and ongoing consequences warn other potential sinners away from sin. Now, some of you here today could be facing really, really tough consequences for sins right now. Whether health challenges, family discord, ruined relationships, strained marriages, or other things. Know this today, that if you have been forgiven by Jesus, your consequences are not meant to punish you, but to purify you. Painful though it may be, your discipline comes from a Father who loves you. Others of you need to be warned because you are either toying with sin now or you will be faced with major temptation in the near future. Maybe, maybe tight finances are causing you to consider questionable decisions or dealings. Maybe a, a cute coworker is causing you to fantasize about possibilities. Maybe you're thinking about leaving your spouse even on inappropriate grounds. Maybe you're mentally planning how to, to watch some explicit show soon. Maybe you're itching to share some tantalizing gossip about someone else. Maybe you're plotting how to get back at someone who hurt you. I don't know what your main temptation is right now, but I do know you will face it. I appreciate how Garrett Kell, Pastor Garrett Kell, sounds the alarm. He says, Satan doesn't tell you sin's true cost because the cost is too high. 
He wants to lull you into thinking sin won't cost you as much as it will. You can keep things hidden. You can get out at any time. Your compromises are small. They won't lead to a great fall. He only speaks lies. Some of you are standing at a crossroads right now. You've been sipping on sin's potion and are becoming intoxicated by its lies. Satan wants you to keep sipping so you'll become drunk, unable to consider God's warning of the destruction that lies ahead. David's sin was certainly deadly in cost. Though mercifully, not for him. Arguably, the, the most bothersome, unsettling part of this story is who it was deadly for, right? In verse 14, where he said, You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. And down in 22, David said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Side note there, that verse there, verse 23, is one of the strongest verses in the Bible to imply what has been called an age of accountability. In short, the belief that when a baby or someone unable to mentally comprehend sin or salvation dies, God mercifully purifies their sin nature and takes them to be with himself. David says, I shall go to him. When? How? He seems to be talking about an afterlife. And based on this, as well as appealing to the justice and mercy and righteousness of God. I believe David's child was with the Lord after death. As is your child or grandchild or miscarried child or disabled friend who died. We can cling to God's goodness and trust him with this. We have to. But, back to the story. When I first read, nevertheless, because this, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born you shall die, I recoil. What? Why? And why did why'd the baby have to die? And why do you have to suffer for seven days on top of that? Out of every person in this story, he's the most innocent one. The holy innocent victim. This summer, my family and I visited the Sight and Sound Theaters in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you've never heard of it or been, I highly recommend it. It's kind of like Christian Broadway. Right now, they are doing a wonderful live production on the life of David. And the way that they portray the whole ordeal of David and Bathsheba is powerful. But as Nathan shows up to confront David and pronounce his sentence, and you see this played out, 
it bothered me. I was struck by the seeming injustice of it all. Like David should die, not his son. Well, as I was reading the, the program handout that they give you and, and seeing the titles of the scenes, I noticed they had a scene entitled at the end, The Sacrifice of the Son of David. And in that scene, as, as David weeps over his sin and God forgives him, it shows off to the side Jesus on a cross dying as the ultimate forgiveness for David's sin. But I had this massive light bulb moment right then. Because I have no idea if the scriptwriters meant to write this with a double meaning. But the sacrifice of the son of David definitely had a double meaning. Because the son of David died in his place. Say it again. The son of David died in his place. The baby's death was not only a tragic side effect of David's sin. His life was sacrificed so David's life wouldn't be. And it was absolutely no coincidence that the one who died was the most innocent party. An innocent substitute took David's place. His son took his place in death. So as the light bulb went off for me, I was staggered once again. Not just by what sin cost David, but by the sacrifice that freed him. And this gives us a final point that I must show you today, because I cannot leave you in the despair of sin. Because that's not where God leaves us. <laughs> Sin is unbelievably costly, but your sin is not beyond God's forgiveness. So, we can be blinded to the true horror of sin, and we should be staggered by the deadly cost of sin. But don't miss me now. We may be freed by a gracious sacrifice for sin. We may be forgiven and freed by a gracious substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Now, even an innocent baby's death couldn't fully pay for a man's sins, but it could foreshadow the sacrifice of the greater son of David to come. Think of that day. The Jewish leaders said of Jesus, he deserves death. But he never did. Yet he actually died in David's place, in our place. The innocent for the guilty. Listen, the way that I felt the unfairness of the death of David's son, my recoiling to it, we should feel just as much discomfort about the death of Christ. Right? David should have died, not his son. And we should have died, not Jesus. But thank God, he is gracious to undeserving sinners. He's merciful. Sin against a holy God demands death. It's either us or it's someone else. As we were at the theater and 
You see David weeping, repenting of his sin, and snow start falling. Fake snow, of course. It doesn't snow in summer or indoors. <laughs> it was a powerful moment, though. I started crying, too. As David prayed his prayer of confession from Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You can pray this prayer too today. Even right now, where you sit, pray. It's even hard consequences for sin don't mean that we are not or that we can't be forgiven. Freedom and forgiveness are available because an innocent son of David died in your place. I have two things I want to urge you to do in light of the truth, that we may be freed by a gracious sacrifice for sin. And they're in your notes there. First is to repent and be free. <laughs> repent and be free. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've considered doing, come to Jesus today. Confess your sin to him. Confess your sin to someone you trust as sin thrives in the dark. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ, and he will forgive you, guaranteed. There is far more mercy in him than there is sin in us. He's not standing there with arms crossed, scowling at you, begrudged that you'd come. He's waiting with tear-stained eyes, arms opened to embrace you ecstatic that you'd come. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God loves to show grace to sinners, and God loves you. So repent and be free. Second, we may be freed by a gracious sacrifice for sin, so resist and flee. May the sacrifice of Christ compel us to do away with sin repeatedly and ruthlessly. Do whatever it takes to root out sin for the sake of Christ. Be strong in the Lord and resist sin. Run away from it in the power of the Spirit. The dangers are too great and the cost is too high. Let anyone who thinks that he or she stands take heed lest they fall. A while ago, a friend here at church forwarded me a devotional from Charles Spurgeon. And unbeknownst to my friend, it was so timely for me. I had been wrestling that day with some pretty strong temptation in my life. And these words popped into my inbox. I want to leave them with you today. He says, Christian, why would you play with sin? Has it not cost you enough already? Burnt child, will you play with the fire? What? When you have already been between the jaws of the lion, will you step a second time into his den? Have you not had enough of the old serpent? 
Did you not poison all your veins once? And will you play at the cobra's den and put your hand in the dragon's lair a second time? Do not be so mad, so foolish. Did sin ever yield you real pleasure? Did you find solid satisfaction in it? If so, go back to your old drudgery and wear the chain again if it delights you. But inasmuch as sin never gave you what it promised to bestow, but deluded you with lies, do not be snared by the old fowler. Be free and let the memory of your enslavement prevent you from entering the net again. It is contrary to the designs of eternal love, which are all focused on your purity and holiness. Therefore, do not run counter to the purposes of your Lord. Another thought should restrain you from sin. Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for iniquity. Transgression destroys peace of mind, obscures fellowship with Jesus, hinders prayer, brings darkness over the soul. Therefore, do not be the serf and slave of sin. There is still a higher argument. Each time you serve sin, you are crucifying once again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Can you bear that thought? If you have fallen into any special sin during this day, it may be that my master has sent this admonition today to bring you back before you have wandered very far. Turn to Jesus afresh. He has not forgotten his love for you. His grace is still the same. With weeping and repentance, come to his footstool, and you shall be reunited in his love. You will be set upon a rock again, and your going shall be established. Let's pray. And as we do so, I ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't usually ask you to do here. But if God's been working on your heart today, exposing stuff, convicting you, humbling you, opening your eyes to something, what I want to encourage you to do is just